Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are on day 351. We're on our way. That's crazy. To the end. This is like the last ride for the year, which is not really. We have one more week at least. But... Uh, as you're listening, we want to answer questions. We've got a couple this week that we're excited to take time at the end of our podcast to answer. And so there's still time to get us your questions by the end of the year. So make sure to send those in to us. There's three ways you can do it. One is an email. The email address is infogrove.church. Make sure to put in a subject line that this is a podcast question, or you can DM us on social media via Facebook or Instagram. The handle for both of those accounts is the church or the Grove CH, uh, and we will get them there as well. And look forward to answering those questions as the year winds down. All right. Yeah, it is. It is crazy to be winding down. We're in what we're doing three epistles today. We're in the last six epistles total. And then we have the book of Revelation next week. So next week we'll be doing all of the epistles Listen, post of Christmas. So we'll get through Christmas and have a great time. And then the 26th, the day after we start Revelation. That's kind of funny how it works out that way. Uh, but yeah, so we'll have, I guess it's seven epistles left. So we're doing three today. We'll do four next week and the book of Revelation. But the four next week are really short. Three of them you could read like in under two minutes if you really wanted to. So it'd be pretty fast, but oh yeah. Aaron's looking at me like I'm weird. Second, third, John, Jude, you could read all those really fast. In two minutes? I bet you, you could. I almost want to take two minutes on our podcast and make you do it. (laughs) Make me do it. I bet you I could read, I could read third John out loud in under two minutes pretty easily, but we'll, we'll test that next week. You heard it here first, listeners. I'll be reading the entirety of Third John on the podcast next week and we'll see how long it takes. Uh, But this week we are in the book of Hebrews. Not in the books of, or not in the letters of John. Uh, This is the only epistle that we have that is anonymous. Uh, So kind of interesting because obviously in the Old Testament, there's a lot of books that are anonymous, all of the history books. And and part of that is because, at least with Kings and Samuel, they're probably compiled over long periods of time, uh, particularly Kings. Samuel might have been more uh, compiled in in the one moment. But uh, in the New Testament, every book is accounted for except for the book of Hebrews. So, But with that, that being said, we have some clues as to who the author could be. The usual five options. We do. Oh, I'm going to talk about them right now. Uh, The usual five options are Paul, Barnabas, Clement, who we haven't met, uh, Luke, or Apollos. Um, So here's here's the clues that we have as to who it could be. Uh, We know that they knew Timothy. So Timothy is mentioned at the end of the letter. Uh, We know that the author is probably male because he uses the masculine language to describe himself. And by that, I don't mean like... Uh, in in Hebrew, there's masculine and feminine ways of saying word, like Spanish, basically think of it that way. So he's using masculine words and it refer, referring to himself. So that's why we would think the author is, um, is a man. Uh, we also can guess that he wasn't an eyewitness to Christ, but rather someone who had heard the gospel at a later time, because there's a, there's a point in there where it talks about uh, as the gospel was first preached to us. So that seems to kind of hint that it it wasn't Jesus, but it could be, you know, you never know. Uh, But he also felt the confidence to write a letter specifically to Jewish believers, because this is a letter to the Hebrews. Uh, And then he cites the Old Testament patriarchs as our fathers. And so to me, that would seem to hint that the author himself is Jewish, because you wouldn't count the patriarchs and the prophets as our fathers if you were Greek, I think. So given all of that info, 
if you put a gun to my head and said, you have to guess who wrote Hebrews or you, or you die, A, I would say, this is a really weird situation I find myself in and why are you doing this? But B, I would say probably Barnabas. Uh, Aaron, I don't know if you have a favorite person you think wrote it, but that's where I that's where I land. Barnabas, huh? Yeah, Barnabas. He's he's Jewish. We don't know that he met Jesus, so he could be like a Jewish believer who heard the gospel at a later point. Um, Paul also checks all of the boxes. The issue is the letter is so different from yeah. the way that Paul writes that it seems like it wouldn't be it wouldn't be his. Um, also, because Paul's never. Uh, Paul's never shy about a tr- like writing totally. his name. <laughs> yeah. Like he, he says very clearly who he's from. So I don't think it's Paul. Um, I don't think it's Apollos or Luke because I do think the author's Jewish. Um, I don't remember enough about Clement to actually like remember what he is, but I think he's Greek as well. Um, so I think I think Barnabas. I think Barnabas wrote it. Interesting. Yeah. So there you go. It, it, who knows? We, we'll find out in heaven later on. But maybe if it even matters. It, well, yeah. I mean, it doesn't super duper matter. But it's, well, it is. It is also interesting too because um, there's really early references to Hebrews where they say they don't know who wrote it. So this isn't like a thing where we, they was very, very well known for a long time and then yeah. it was lost. This is pretty, pretty close to after it was, I mean, I say pretty close in an ancient scale. So a, a, a couple generations after it was written, we have documents saying that we don't know who wrote Hebrews. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Eusebius who just said, but he, he basically lists off all of the authors that he think could have wrote it. And he says, but who actually wrote it? Only God knows. And maybe that's just the way that we land on it. The, the ESV study Bible says that one. I think it's a good way to think about it. Uh, the date, however, is easier to land on. So uh, spoilers, we're told that at the end of the letter that Timothy was just released from prison. Uh, so given that we don't hear about that in Acts or any of Paul's letters, like none of Paul's letters to Timothy reference, hey, you're also in prison right now. Uh, so it seems to me that we would date this after Paul's after second Timothy, yeah. uh, somewhere after that point, Timothy was put into prison. Uh, so if Paul is killed in around AD 64, that means that this letter is at the earliest 65 ish, or if you are, or it could be, I don't know, the day after Paul was killed or something like that, but probably we're talking about like 65 ish or so. Um, and then the, the author references the sacrificial system, like it's a thing that's still going on. Uh, so that would date it to before AD 70, which is when the temple is destroyed, when Jerusalem is uh, destroyed by the Romans. So we actually have, for all of the weirdness about yeah. the author, we don't know who wrote it. Very we actually tight have a, window. Yeah, we have about a four-year window of between 65 to 69-ish is when this letter was written. So there you go. So, you know, nothing, nothing to sneeze at there. It's kind of fun. Uh, and then that's it. We're going to get, we're going to jump in right now. The author of Hebrews begins firing on all cylinders, demonstrating the full supremacy of Christ. Uh, we also get a hint into the heresy that he is writing to address. And this is a uniquely, it seems like a uniquely Jewish heresy that's happening at this point. Um, but the idea that Jesus is one of the angels so that he is not the son of God. He's not co-equal with God, but rather Christ is one of, one of the angels. And there is is it Jehovah's Witness who believe that Jesus is Michael, the archangel? I think I, I think that's right. So I don't know. I don't know enough to actually defend the CS, but that sounds vague. I, I believe that's so. right. I, I mean, either way, they're heretical. So I don't care. You know, if you if you're offended by that, what are you going to do? But I think, I'm pretty sure that is. I'm pretty sure that is what the belief there is. Uh, that's so, called a hot take. So hot take. I'm just kidding. A, a Jehovah's Witness or uh, not Christians? That's not a hot take. That's a. Uh, Look at the doctrine, man. Anyway, we're getting way off track now. So we're, the author of Hebrews is definitively saying 
Jesus is not an angel. He's not one of them. Uh, he cites he psychs, he cites many of the messianic prophecies to show that Jesus is not one of the angels. And his final argument is that uh, Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the Father, while angels serve as ministering spirits to Christians who are to inherit God's salvation. So he even says the the role of what Jesus does, the role of what Christ does now is different from the role of what angels does now. And if he was just an angel, he would be doing the same thing that angels do. So there you go. Uh, the author then pivots to what the ministering angels are helping to preserve, and that is the message of salvation. Uh, he reminds us, and he reminds the readers, but us by extension, to hold fast to our faith or to hold on and to not fall away. Uh, but again, he is quick to remind his audience that the gift of salvation did not come from the angels. So they're they're building us up through faith. The angels are ministering to us as Christians, but the, the idea is not that we get our salvation from the angels. This is Hebrews chapter two, verses five through nine. For it was not again not to the angels that God subject subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, but you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in the subjugation under its feet, under his feet, now putting everything in subjugation to him and left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjugation to him, but we ha we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So again, talking about how what Jesus, when it says made lower than the angels, for a little while made lower the, than the angels, what that's talking about is Jesus, while he was on earth, was fully incarnate. So he's fully God, fully man the whole time. Uh, but he is fully incarnate at that point. He, he's, um, this, this always gets so hard to like try and explain, but basically Jesus is not, um, yeah, he, he's fully here on earth in human form, I guess is the best way I would put that. And then after the resurrection, uh, he trans, he ascends back into heaven and then it's all, it's a little, it's a little bit different after that. So for a little while, Jesus is lower than the angels, but he goes through, uh, all of those things. He suffers the death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the idea there is that, and we'll get into this, believe me, listeners, as we go through Hebrews, that Jesus' death is the final sacrifice. Uh, as he continues, the author begins to demonstrate that Jesus' ministry here on earth has made him a sympathetic high priest. So in other words, because Jesus was fully man and because he was fully incarnate while he was here on earth, he suffered and he was tempted just like we are. So when, when, uh, when Jesus intercedes on our behalf, He's doing so knowing the types of temptations that we suffer through. He's doing so knowing the pain that we walk through in human life. He, he, he was a man. He lived a full life. And so he knows what those things are like. So re really cool way to say that there. Uh, he then contrasts Jesus and Moses, which is interesting. Uh, so Moses is the one who delivered God's old covenant. Jesus is the one who delivers God's new covenant. However, Moses was just a man where Jesus is God in the flesh. So it is kind of funny to think the author of Hebrews is going to contrast the old and new covenants quite a lot. Uh, in this one, he's contrasting who brought the covenants, right? So Moses obviously didn't create the old covenant. The old covenant came from God. But Moses is the messenger who is heralding the start of the old covenant. That's what's happening at Sinai and all those different things. Jesus is heralding the start of the new covenant, which is again, what happens with his death and resurrection. Uh, the author then moves to plead for his people to not be like another generation of Israelites who received a new covenant from God. So this, I think this is really interesting. He says, for who were those who heard yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? 
Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So what the author is doing here is he's basically, and again, remember, he's writing to the Hebrews. So he's writing to a Jewish audience, uh, specifically Jewish believers. But he's talking about how the when God ushered in the first covenant with the people of Israel, there was a group of Israelites who didn't believe and they didn't get to partake in that covenant because of that. They were a rebellious generation. And now we're seeing the same thing where the new covenant has been ushered in by Christ and there's a group of Israelites who do not want to believe and they're not going to be able to take hold of that new covenant because of their unbelief. So it, it's, it reminds me of, I think it's Romans where Paul is kind of just pleading and hoping for Jewish believers or for, for the Jews to come to faith in Christ and to recognize that he's the Messiah. It reminds me a lot of that where the author of Hebrews whether it's Paul or Barnabas or whoever it is, is clearly longing for um, all of Israel to recognize that Christ is the Messiah. Uh, chapter four continues with this theme, showing that the rest that the people of Israel were offered was the new covenant, not the promised land. So he's talking through all of the, he uses the example of um, sometimes the rest is interpreted to mean taking hold of the promised land and that's it. But Joshua gives them, basically says like the rest is still to come one day. And so the author of Hebrews is arguing that it can't be the taking hold of the promised land because that happens. And yet still there's a rest that's going to come after that. So he's saying it's the new covenant and it makes sense with Jesus language of my yoke is easy. My burden is life. I will, you know, I will give you rest. So good deal there. Uh, The author then reiterates his point that Jesus is our ultimate high priest who can empathize with us. And that's going to get brought up a lot. Uh, In chapter five, we see that Jesus is the greatest high priest because he seeks the forgiveness only of the sin of others, not his own. No other high priest was perfect and sinless. And so we talk about how uh, in the old covenant, the high priest, part of the reason they're having to offer sacrifice all the time is because the high priests themselves are sinful. (laughs) Like they mess up because they're, they're human. That's what we do. Uh, And so the high priest is coming to God from a posture of a sinful man acting on behalf, on behalf, on behalf of the sinful people. Jesus is uh, is God in the flesh, perfect, holy, sinless, acting on behalf of the sinless people. So he's an even greater high priest because he doesn't need to bring his his sin before the Father. He is only bringing the sin of 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 human of humanity before the Father. So cool cool idea there. Uh, and then we also get the whole the start of the order of Melchizedek. We did a whole episode on this. Was it two years ago? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So if you, if you just look up, let's read the Bible Melchizedek, if you want a real deep dive into this, but uh, essentially since Jesus was not a Levite and we're cla- and the author of Hebrews is claiming that he's a high priest, this would have been a very important argument for first century Jews. Uh, we don't care, right? <laughs> like we say today, like Jesus is a high priest. It's like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like most of us aren't going to think, but wait a second. He's a descendant of the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. How can he be a priest? But at this point, remember, put, try to put on, take off your glasses of the modern West and try and put on the glasses of a first century Jew who is this letter was written to. Obviously, this would be a big thing because all of the high priests since Aaron have been Levites and God's ordained it that way. Uh, and so the Mel- Melchizedek is brought up because Melchizedek and I will actually hold on. I'm going to leave that for later because the author of Hebrews goes into Melchizedek a little bit later. Uh, So after this, uh, the author then gives a warning against falling away. Uh, There's a really terrifying section where it says those who fall away from Christ will be unable to be be brought back. And uh, it's impossible for them to be brought back. 
Um, there's a few different ways to interpret this. So the first one would be, is this true Christians, like people who are saved, have a saving faith in Christ and then lose that salvation? Or are these people who um, are in the church, they're around, they, they hear the gospel, they even participate think they're saved or other people think they're saved, but then they fall away. Um, we don't have to get necessarily into all that. I would, I would tend to interpret it as it's not true Christians, but I think you could, you could argue either way from this passage and really intelligent people disagree on this, on this issue. Um, what I don't think it's saying is that Christians who backslide, that's it. It's over for them. Um, because we don't see that as being true anywhere else in scripture. And even in Paul, right? Remember when he's writing to the, to the Corinthians, there's a bunch of Christians, there's a bunch of people in the church who are doing really awful, wicked things. And Paul even says, kick them out, remove them, remove them from the church. But the idea there is not, and keep them out forever. No, the idea is remove them so that they will be shocked into repentance and then they can be brought back into the church. And so clearly the the way to interpret this is not if someone's in church and they fall away for a little bit, that's it, it's over. I think there's something deeper going on here. It's and it probably it's either some level of apostasy that and by apostasy I mean just straight up full on denying denying Christ, denying the Holy Spirit, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And maybe this is talking about the same thing that we get in the gospels as well. So a little bit of a complicated issue, but for the most part, what I would say is Obviously, we need to work through our salvation with fear and trembling. Um, but I, I would encourage people who, like, if you, if you've had seasons in your life where you fell away from the church for a little bit and then came back, I, I don't think that this applies to you. Um, then that that would be my my hopefully helpful notes there. Um, either way, uh, like I said, this is not to say that any backsliding Christian cannot come back. Uh, in a bunch of Paul's letters, they address this. Uh, in chapter seven, the author continues once again, bringing up the idea of the priestly order of Melchizedek. So he comes back to it. Uh, he even points out how interesting of a character Melchizedek is, given that he kind of just appears with no record of what's happening before or after. Uh, so there's two ways to interpret this as well, because what it says is Melchizedek had no father, no mother, no genealogy. He just appears. Um, so some people interpret this as meaning that Melchizedek was a Christophany. And what that means is that he was an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament before the incarnation of Jesus, uh, and or an appearance of the Son, I guess, is probably a better way of phrasing that. Uh, the, the most famous and obvious one would be the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the fourth one who looks like a son of the gods. That's probably because he is, right? So that's, but there's a few more. Uh, another one would be the angel of the, the commander of the armies of the Lord that appears to Joshua is probably a Christophany. Uh, so you could interpret this as saying that Melchizedek is a Christophany who appears to Abraham. I don't interpret this way. I think what the author is getting at when he says he has no father or mother is that we have no record of it. Um, so in other words, in the, in the Hebrew record, Melchizedek just kind of appears and Abraham pays a tithe to him. And we find out that Melchizedek is both a king and a high priest, and that this is not something that is against the will of God. And then Abraham leaves, and then we never hear from Melchizedek again. I think that's what the author is getting at, is he's kind of just a mysterious character who appears and then leaves. You know, he's the, the Tom Bombadil of the Bible, if you will. And if you're just a the Lord of the Rings reference, he just kind of appears and then he's gone after that. So... Yeah, you know, and we don't know where he comes from. I got no words, bro. Yeah, everyone loves Tom Bombadil. Uh, sure. So anyway, so it's that and idea. And the majority of our listeners are like, who? Hey, I feel like, I bet you, maybe maybe majority is too strong, but I bet you a really good chunk of listeners know who Tom <laughs> Bombadil is. Um, anyway, so the, the idea here is that 
people are able to act as priests outside of the Levitical order. Uh, Melchizedek is the example that's brought up, right? We see the Melchizedek is both king and high priest. We see this other places in the Bible, though. We see Job acting as a priest for his family, and this is not something that um, is outright rejected. I believe is is Jethro a priest? Yeah, he's the high priest of Midian. Yeah, so he's another one who's not a Levite, but he's acting as a high priest as well. So we see this throughout the Old Testament. Um, the idea is that in Israel, the high priests are Levites, but that doesn't mean that that office is completely closed off in, in all of history to everyone else as well. So that's one argument there. There's another argument that I think is really interesting that we'll get to in a little bit. Ooh. I know. Uh, and by a little bit, I mean right now. Right now. <laughs> so in Hebrews 7, 11 through 12, it says this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under the people, uh, for under it, the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So here's what he's saying. Before the law of Moses, Melchizedek's a priest, Job's a priest, Jethro's a priest. Law of Moses happens. Levites are the priests now. That is who. That is how Israel is to worship God only with Levitical priests, and the old sorry the the old covenant is brought in. Now the new covenant has come in, and what the author author of Hebrews is saying is that when there's a new covenant, this means that the priesthood is going to change. I guess he's, it's actually reversing. That. He's saying the priesthood changes because of the new covenant, um, and so now that the new covenant is here. We have a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We don't. We no longer have high priests in the order of Aaron. And by Aaron, it means Levites, right? Because Aaron was the first high priest. Uh, not Aaron, our beloved co-host, but Aaron, the brother of Moses in the Bible. So, Dude, why you got to out me like that? I know. I'm sorry. Okay. So that's a lot. I mean, I guess for most of us, it doesn't super duper apply today. I just think it's really interesting, but we can, we can continue on. So uh, as he continues, the author shows that because Jesus will not die, there is no need for any other priests. So Jesus is now our only priest, because again, if you have one immortal, eternal God in the flesh priest, you wouldn't need a bunch of other high priests. Now we just have the one. Uh, and so he also reiter- the author of Hebrews also reiterates that uh, unlike fully human high priest, Jesus is holy in and of himself, in and of himself, and he does not need to sacrifice for his own sins. So the author of Hebrews circles back a lot to the different points that he makes. You'll notice that happening, but it it shows you what he thinks is important to make sure that we have as our takeaways. Uh, in chapter eight, the author quotes Jeremiah saying that there had been prophesied, or sorry, saying that it had been prophesied that there would be a new covenant and they are now living in that time. Uh, I remember when we were going through Jeremiah, we talked about those verses where it, he, he, God straight up says, there will come a time of a new covenant. And so in, in that sense, the Israelites should not have been super shocked that the time was coming because the time, the time's now here we are. Uh, the old covenant had been made obsolete after Jesus had ushered in a better covenant. Uh, in chapter nine, the author shows that Jesus is not only our high priest, our better high priest, but he's the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Uh, so it's not just that Jesus is the greater high priest, that Jesus is the the ultimate form of the high priest. Jesus also is the sacrifice for our sin. And when I say ultimate, we mean the final sacrifice for our sin. Uh, the sacrificial system no longer needs to take place because Jesus is the fulfillment of what that was saying. So really cool. And you'll see how the author kind of breaks it down and shows how it's, it's the case. And this is the chapter I was talking about where it's spoken of as if the sacrificial system is still happening with non-Christian, uh, with non-Christian Jews. And so it's probably being written before the temple is destroyed. 
chapter 10 sees the author demonstrate how the sacrifice was a single sacrifice for all saints of all time. And then we get this beautiful passage for what that means for us today. So this is Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25. And it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an, evil con- from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, so essentially saying, because of what Jesus has done, Here's what we should do. Uh, draw near to the Lord. Because if Jesus is our high priest, we don't need to be afraid of what that means. That means that God, Jesus, it's, it's kind of hard to say because we're, we're talking about like Trinitarian theology, but that means that God himself is the mediator between God and man. The, the son is the mediator between the father and man. Uh, and so now we don't have to be afraid. We can, uh, and it says draw near with a true heart. So we we that doesn't mean that doesn't mean we, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. We should hate sin and we should hate sin in our hearts. And we should be trying to purge that, uh, constantly. And we should come, uh, we should come before the Lord with pure hearts. Um, and then also the idea of not neglecting to meet together. And this is one of like those famous verses that gets thrown out when people, cause there are people who it's just like, I don't need the church. I just have, you know, I have a, someone that I like and I, I listen to their messages and I listen to worship music and that's all I need. And so what what he, what the author of Hebrews is getting here at here is, no, there's something about community as well. Like Christian community is not just kind of a, uh, it's not just a good idea. It's a God idea. <laughs> like God designed yeah. us, it, God designed us to be in community. Um, and there's something about being in church together, encouraging one another, uh, being with one another, helping each other grow. Um, I forgot where it's, it's Proverbs, right? Iron sharpens iron sharpens iron. So it's the whole idea there. So yeah, it's a great thing. Uh, we then get to what is probably the most famous section of Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the hall of faith. See, it's like, so cheesy. It's like hall of fame. So, cheesy. but with, but with faith, listen, we Christians were so witty. <laughs> I grew up watching Bible, man. I absolutely 100% subscribe to the idea that we are just the cheesiest group of people that ever lived, but what are you going to do? Uh, so our new covenant is assured through faith, uh, but the author wants to show that this isn't some new thing. So it's not as if, you know, faith is like, Hey, Jesus suffered, ushered in the new covenant. Now we all have to have faith. Uh, so he lists off a bunch of Old Testament examples of people acting through faith, including, but not limited to, actually this is, it is limited to, I, I put every answer, <laughs> unless I missed one. So maybe, you know, maybe I missed one, but uh, so here's his examples. Abel, Abel offering a better sacrifice than Cain. Why does he do that? He does that through faith because he has faith that the Lord is going to accept his offering. Uh, Enoch being taken up to heaven before death. Why has this happened? Because of the faith that he has in God. Uh, Noah building the ark. This is a great example because I don't know about you, but if someone was like, hey, I need you to build a massive boat, even the audible voice of God, I, I like to think I would obey. But that would take a lot of faith to just build just build a boat and be and everyone's asking you about it. It's like, yeah, it's gonna rain a bunch and we're all gonna die. Um, but Noah does it. Uh, Abraham leaving Ur or leaving his homeland. He does that by faith. He has faith that the Lord is going to give him what he promised. Uh, Sarah being able to conceive, which I thought was an interesting uh 
addition because she famously laughs at the idea that she would have a children. That's why Isaac is named uh, Isaac because it translates to laughter in Hebrew. But Sarah is able to conceive because of her faith. Uh, we see Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice because he has faith that even if uh, Isaac is killed, that God will still fulfill his covenant to him. Uh, Jacob blessing his sons on his deathbed. This is done through faith because he's asking God for these blessings. Uh, this one's really interesting. I, I never thought about it before, or I guess I just thought about it freshly for a new time. Uh, Joseph asking for his bones to be buried in Israel. In that moment, he has faith that the Exodus will happen one day, that the people of Israel are not just here in Egypt forever, but they will return to their homeland. And so Joseph asking for his bones to be buried there is showing his faith. So really cool. Uh, Moses's parents hiding him for the first few months of his life. Remember, he's not born and then they put him right into the basket. He's born, they hide him for a few months, and then when they can't hide him anymore, they put him in a basket. So there you go. Uh, Moses rejecting his Egyptian adoption. So he very easily could have been, remember Prince of Egypt, sometimes that gets in our minds. Moses knew that he was Jewish the entire way, uh, but he very much could have been a member of the Egyptian court and essentially used his status as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, uh, but he doesn't. He, he keeps his Jewish status and he does that through faith. Uh, Moses leaving e Egypt, he does that through faith that he's going to be able to find a way. Uh, the first Passover, so remember Angel of Death, all of that, uh, that happens because of faith. The people crossing the Red Sea, uh, that's a big moment of faith. Uh, do they immediately follow it up by creating an idol and claiming that that's the one who did it for them? Yes, they do. But you know, let's not focus on that right now. Uh, the people marching around Jericho. That's a pretty silly thing. Like if you're, I don't know about you, but if you're going to go siege a city, uh, the the number one strategy is not, hey, go walk around it a bunch of times, but the people do it. Uh, Rahab helping the spies. And so basically she has faith that God is who he says he is. Then she even talks about how she's heard all of the stories and she has faith in God. Uh, and then finally we have Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, Samuel, and quote unquote, the prophets. So just the prophets as a whole, uh, they all get an honorable mention. So the author of Hebrews, he ends it with Rahab and he's like, oh yeah, but don't forget, like here's some of the judges and also all of the prophets. They had a bunch of faith as well. So there you go. Uh, and I love the way that the author uses this list to inspire his readers. So he says, then this is the beginning of chapter 12. He says, therefore, so, and, and I like the way Pastor Nick says it. Anytime you read a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Because it's whatever came before it. So therefore, since we are uh, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the uh, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of the spirits and live? For, the, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields 
the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Uh, so essentially, he uh, he uses the metaphor of a race. And he says, therefore, we, we have all these examples of people who had faith in the Lord and they ran their races well and they endured. So we need to do the same thing. And then it, it, even continuing on with the metaphor of the race, when it gets hard, and he's talking about the discipline of the Lord, um, bringing sin before the Lord, having the Holy Spirit continuously shape us to be more and more like Christ. Um, this is a really painful thing. And I love the way he says it, though, because he, he essentially is like, yeah, but don't hate the discipline of the Lord, because the fact that he's disciplining you shows that you are his child. If he wasn't, that means that he basically says you're an illegitimate child, which is uh, ooh, that's it's a, a slap in the face. Exactly. Uh, and so I, I forgot which pastor it was. It might've been maybe probably me. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't know. I think it was Mark Driscoll maybe, but uh, it was someone just talking about how like, that's why I tell my kids every time I have to discipline them is like, Hey, you know, I could not discipline you. And then you would all be illegitimate sons. So maybe that's a way to th- say it in the future. Uh, the rest of the book, I'm, I'm not going to touch that with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> uh, the rest of the book explores this theme. How are we to live in light of our salvation? Uh, and so here's some more helpful commands. This, this is in chapter 13. It says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's kind of a cool thought. Uh, remember those who were in prison as though in prison with them and those who were mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and let it be con- and let and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, so a couple, yeah, just kind of ran, not random, but like one thought after the other, right? So always show hospitality to everyone. I love the little aside of saying, and sometimes when we've done this, it hasn't even been humans. It's been angels that we've shown hospitality to unaware, unaware that it even happened. So that's kind of a cool thing. Just going about our daily lives. You never know. Uh, remember people who are in prison and remember at this point, it's particularly people who are in, in prison because of their beliefs, right? Like people like Timothy just got out of prison. There's a lot of people who are in this. He's like, remember them, take care of them. Uh, and then even the, the people who are mistreated, remember them as well. Uh, the idea of holding marriage in high honor. So fight for healthy marriages. Remember to uh, love your spouse the way that Christ loved the church. Uh, and then keep your life free from the love of money. Or in other words, don't be materialistic, which I think is a big struggle in American culture today. Um, but hold money loosely and remember that God said he will never leave us nor forsake us. Uh, there's some more applications at the end of the letter for how we should live. So kind of just read through those. And then the author of Hebrews ends by letting his readers know that, and I said this at the beginning, uh, Timothy has been released from prison. And so he hopes to see him soon. And then he says that, uh, you know, a bunch of guys from Italy say hi. So specifically says the, I think it's the brothers. From what do Italy. they sound like when they say hi? Hey, they're good. I'm one saying hi. Yes. So, if you're a if you're a sports fan, this is a total random thing. But Tommy DeVito is like a a quarterback for the Giants right now. And then did you see his agent the other day? On yeah. oh, dude, it's the greatest meme ever. Where it's just like the guy looks like he's in the mob, and it's amazing. But there you go. That's what I think of with the Italian brothers. I think that's who was with the other beepers, and they say hi to all the churches. So. I got no words, bro. Oh man. Okay. Well, Aaron's gonna take us through. The two letters of Peter, which are the other epistles that we're in today. But before we do, uh, we do want to take a moment to remind you to leave us a five-star review on whatever app you're listening to, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are kind of the ones where it helps out the most. Um, On Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we'll read it on the air and give you a shout out just because, you know, that's the kind of of guys we were. We like giving our listeners a shout out. Yeah. So, Aaron, 
Yeah, it's a great Christmas What's gift. What's going on? So feel free to leave us a review for Christmas. This That's year. true. Yeah, I guess this is, is this the last this episode? No, we got one more. One more before Christmas? Yep. When does that one drop? Oh, it drops on Christmas, Christmas Eve, Eve doesn't yep. it? Yeah, all right. Well, yep. never mind. And then that's it. That's what we'll year. make. That's where we'll make the push for a Christmas gift on the Christmas Eve episode. Like, no, hey, you make it now so that way we can read it before Christmas. And I guess that's the end true. of the year. So now is the time to leave us a Christmas gift by writing a review. Thank you. Boom. Uh, yes, as Evan said, I'm going to read through. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I'm going to read through First Peter, Second Peter today. That's what we read through this week, um, and then. Uh, it's kind of a last push to the end. And like I already said, the very top of the podcast is we'll hit Revelation the day after Christmas. Um, so we get to get to Christmas through Christmas before <clears throat> we really dive in. <clears throat> Man, there's something. Right th- there we go. Uh, before we really dive into the book of Revelation and finish the year out that way. Um, pers- First Peter uh, is written to encourage suffering believers all throughout Asia Minor. Uh, he encourages them to stand faith and, uh, and they're firm in their faith in Christ in the middle of persecution, uh, he urged them, and we'll see this through the letters that he'll urge them to, to do this by focusing on the spiritual privileges and more specifically the place where their rights and privileges lay, in other words, eternity. Um, so he causes them and calls them to focus on eternal hope, not uh, earthly hope. Um, so it'll happen throughout the book. We'll find uh, that suffering is perceived as normal for believers uh, because they're temporary residents in the world, which is a really, which is a really interesting thought that I don't think is applicable to us today in America. Uh, but it's this picture that he's he's talking to the believers all throughout Asia Minor uh, to stand firm in their faith, but also to understand suffering is normal uh, for believers, just like uh, temporary residents in any other country lack rights and don't receive justice, uh, typically in a foreign land. And so that's, uh, that's the comparison I think is really strong that really, really the strong comparison, sorry, the better way to say it would be what Peter is trying to exhort and encourage his brothers and sisters spread out in Asia Minor in is that the faith in Christ uh, is our, provides our eternal hope in the midst of suffering. And just like foreigners uh, don't get justice quickly, they don't have a lot of rights within a country they live in that we can cling to our eternal hope, but also understand in this present world that we're not going to receive justice and we will receive persecution as well. And and I, I think it's really important to understand this distinction in Peter's letter, because in America, this doesn't really, we don't really face this kind of suffering. Um, we face more inconvenience and then hardship and tragedy, but not suffering like Peter would refer to. And I want to be very careful because it's not to minimize circumstances that I'm unaware of, but the reality is we live in a, a very blessed and free country. Uh, and so it's going to be hard to make that connection, but I think it's important to understand in the midst of suffering that Peter is talking about, like he calls them not to momentary hope, that he calls them to anchor their lives to eternal hope. And that's a very big shift that we find even through a lot of the epistles is it's not about the present circumstances. So I think that's that's some of the tone that we're going to read in First Peter uh, and that I think is really, really good. Um, chapter one carries a greeting like most letters do, uh, as well as clarity to who the audience Peter is actually writing to. And he says, it's those living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontius in Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Uh, so we know kind of who he's writing to, and that actually carries over into the second letter, uh, because it seems to be a continuation of this first one at a separate time. Uh, this first section of chapter one will offer praise to God for the privileges he has bestowed on believers. Uh, he encourages, Peter will encourage believers by reminding them that God has caused them to be born again through the resurrection of Christ, and they now have an eternal reward and hope. 
And in light of this new hope, uh, we'll find in chapter one that Peter exhorts them all to live as to live holy lives. Uh, and this is what he says in, in verse three, 13 through 21. It says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, which is the former way of life, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. There's the comparison that he's making. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has revealed, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so Peter takes there, uh, lays out the foundation of the eternal hope that we have through the resurrection of Christ. And in light of that hope, he's calling uh, and he's establishing the biblical standard of holiness. Be holy because he is holy. Let your lives and the way you live reflect and, 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 and shine forth holiness. Uh, and he presents that argument. He then continues in chapter two, this exhortation to live holy lives. And he says so by maturing in one's faith. Uh, and that can be shown in the way we reject the sinful ways of life. Um, he uses an analogy of building a house and that we will build on a living stone, which will then in turn impact the whole house. Um, and there's honor for those who build on the living stone. Uh, and he's in essence saying the way we build our houses on the living stone is first Christ is the living stone. Second is the conduct with which we live our lives is how we're building on that living stone. And so those who build on the living stone will have honor and those who do not build on the living stone, in other words, who build, who their conduct reflects building not on the living stone, but is built on, I mean, the, the, there's the new Testament's, you know, a parable of the wise man built his house upon the rock, the foolish man built his house upon the sand so Peter's following suit with that theme here, but also saying, for those of us who are in Christ, we're living uh, very diligently, very holy lives. That means we're building upon the living stone, which is Christ himself, the foundation. Um, And those who are building away from the living stone are going to find dishonor because they reject the stone that is the strongest foundation possible. Uh, And then we get the simple passage where Peter is uh, regarding uh, the holy lives and what we're called to live through by maturing in one's faith, building on the living stone. He then says this in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so again, he's reinforcing and re-anchoring their faith back to the living stone, which is Christ. And in their response to salvation, to the invitation, they are a part of God's family. They are set apart. They are raised up. They are built and established as a a chosen race and a royal priesthood. And he's speaking and encouraging and exhorting and and reestablishing the why and the what of building our lives by the conduct we live to be holy. Um, after this familiar passage, we're followed up. We see a follow-up uh, to, of a call to live a life of good works. Uh, and he, he specifically hits this idea of human authority, submit to human authority. Uh, and he says in verse 16, submit as free people, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Let the brothers and sisters fear God and honor the emperor. So Peter's making a very clear distinction here about one of the ways that we live our lives in holiness and in responsiveness to the living stone is to submit to human authority. And he's saying submit is free people. It's not a... Um, it's it's a choice that we get to make to submit to, to human authority, specifically the emperor in that time, which again, part of the persecution they were facing was from human authority. And Peter's challenging them and telling them, we don't live according to this temporary world because we're strangers in this land. Our eternal dwelling is with God. And in the meantime, we're called to honor and walk with reverency and honor and submit to human authority. Uh, and then he takes a moment in chapter two and focuses on slaves submitting to their masters. And he says, whether they're good or cruel, submit to them. Um, and in doing so, he's, he's setting their focus on Christ and his suffering, and then reveals that the honor and favor rewarded from God for those who submit and suffer for honor. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you, this is a weird thing for us to understand today, because when we hear this tone of slavery, there's, especially in America, we kind of bristle up, at, or we should, I think, bristle up at the idea of slavery and the the seeming condoning uh, and just telling of slaves. But again, we have to remember, and we've said this multiple times this year through the podcast, we have to remember culturally it was a different time. Culturally, slavery was not what we understand slavery to be. Um, and what Peter is saying is the temporary way of life, the temporary circumstances we are facing now, whether hard or difficult or tragic or unfortunate or socially unjust, those things are, are the just the reality of the world. And he's calling them to a higher standard. He's calling, not a standard, a higher uh, uh, focus in anchoring back to our eternal hope. Um, and he, and he enforce, reinforces the reality and power of eternal hope and not on the earthly side of things. Um, and it's, it's not to say that we today shouldn't fight for social justice, but back then there was no such thing as social justice. It was just, this is the, the, the socioeconomic structure and this is how it plays out. And so it's interesting to me that Peter's answer to any social injustice, as we would understand social injustice today, was Christ and the hope we have in eternity. That's what Peter was saying. In the midst of this hardship, honor God by how you live. Honor God by how you honor Honor God by how you submit to human authority. Whether it's cruel and unjust or it's good and God-honoring, submit to human authority and you honor God by doing so with the mentality of, I'm, I'm, do, I'm living for him in the midst of this dysfunction, in the midst of this injustice. And Peter's answer for social justice is simply Christ and the hope we have in eternity. And I do believe that that is a very big part of, of what we as Christians carry into today's world is that the answer for a lot of the uh, injustices that we find today is Jesus. And and I, and I, I would also suggest that as, as Christians, we carry a heavier weight and a bigger weight understanding this truth. We should be as diligent as we can to be wise, to be gracious, to be generous, to be kind, to be caring, so we can honor God with how we live and care for one another. Um, but that's it. It's it's a pretty powerful moment when we when we pull back for a moment and realize what Peter is addressing within the the uh, New Testament believers and the suffering they're facing, and he anchors it back to the hope of, of that we have in eternity. Uh, in chapter three, he shifts the submission conversation to wives and husbands. Um, and the submission that Peter explains with is that of a quiet and gentle spirit for, and, and the beauty is 
found in a woman who leads and loves and cares from a quiet and gentle spirit. Um, and, and it's in this way that we find through Peter's exhortation that God is not only honored, but that salvation actually becomes a greater possibility when wives submit and honor and, and care and love their husbands in this way. It's not the only way, because then you think you can take this passage in, in Second Peter chapter, or First Peter chapter three, sorry, and combine it with Ephesians and Colossians, where Paul is creating a very high standard biblical understanding of what it means to be married, uh, but also understanding this reality of submission, this reality of gentleness and, and quietness, not silence, but quietness and care and love very strategically and beautifully. And, and it's a beautiful internal beauty that that is highlighted there uh, from wives in the midst of their willingness to submit uh, in this fashion to their husbands. Um, he then takes a moment to uh, exhort husbands and say to live with their wives in an understanding way as the weaker partner. And I think it's interesting because it's not to say less than, but weaker in the sense of um, a physical ability and there's layers to the conversation where it's it's the challenges to husbands. Are you loving and leading in a way that you understand your wives, and then you show them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life? Uh, and then there's the like the the other side of it is like so your prayers will not be hindered. In essence, Paul or Peter, not Paul, Peter is saying as husband, it's your job to lead and love from a place of understanding, understanding that your your wife is not. Um, to the same strength or to the same mindset. There's a difference in men and women. And as husbands and wives, we have to, as husbands, lead from a place of understanding and then showing them honor as co-heirs with grace of life. In other words, saying they're on equal footing. So Peter is, again, reinforcing this biblical understanding, this Christ-centered reality that the women are not lesser. Uh, now, they have different characteristics and can be perceived as weak in a culture, but it's understanding and, and loving and leading them from a place of understanding and then drawing them to a place, living from a place of understanding the honors co-heirs of the grace of life, which is really important too. Uh, and this is, 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 is it's something that we can add to the picture of marriage that we understand today. And it should only really enhance and encourage our obedience and understanding. As husbands, I'm a husband, Evan's a husband. It's our responsibility to lead and love from a place of understanding and also equal footing knowing that they're co-heirs, that they're not subordinate, they don't receive their inheritance from me, but they're co-heirs in the grace of life that God has given us. And it's my job to love and lead and care and work from that place of understanding them. Uh, so he talks about this idea of submission uh, and how we honor God by the conduct of our lives and submitting to, to one another's husbands and wives. And then we get in chapter 13 or chapter three, wow, verse 13, we see um Right before this verse of 13, we see some exhortations that Peter gives, uh, and then we get this where we see we see Peter says this in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 3. It says, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so Peter then takes a moment to shift out of some exhortations to challenge and remind uh, early Christians, earlier than us, I guess, uh, the reality of not just living holy lives, but also 
keeping in perspective the suffering that we may face. Uh, but he also says, like, do this with, gen- like, be ready to give a reason for the hope. We hear that. Uh, I, I've heard that a ton throughout my church life. Uh, but this idea of being ready to explain to anyone who asks, why am I hopeful in the midst of hardship? Why am I hopeful in the midst of suffering? And when you put that verse into context with which Peter is saying to exiles in Asia Minor, in the midst of the suffering they're facing, that takes a more powerful picture of a grander witness is in the midst of difficulty, problems, and hardship that there is hope that they're clinging to. Their perspective is not anchored to the temporary earthly hope, but it's connected and anchored to eternal hope. And there's a, an incredible opportunity to honor God and and bring salvation to the surface for people who need it. And so that's part of the challenge that, that Peter is reminding them of. It, it kind of reminds me of Romans 8, where Paul is saying, for we know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And there is this goodness, this salva- salvific purpose that can be on display in the midst of hardship and trial that even today we can carry and cling tightly to in the sense that our hope, my hope is not in what I have or what I'm facing now, but my hope is in what is to come in the in the next uh, the next phase of life, which is eternity. Um, we follow chapter three here um, by, by Peter reflecting on one of the sufferings, uh, on one's sufferings for the good of those to for the good to those of Christ. Um, and it's always just a great comparison to keep in mind where we understand Christ's suffering um, and the good that came from that, his willingness to endure because his his mindset, his focus, his anchor was not this side of eternity, but the, but the next side of eternity. Chapter four, uh, we'll find that Peter challenges believers to keep Christ's sufferings in mind and to arm oneself with the same understanding, uh, which should change the way we live and understand our present life. And that's what Peter is challenging in chapter four. Um, He shifts at this point then into an exhortation in light of the last days with this passage of chapter four, verse seven to 11. It says, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And you just see this, like almost this final piece where Peter is taking a moment to remind all believers Hey, we're in the last days. Be alert. Be prayerful. Serve um, with serve with the gifts God has given you. Be hospitable without complaining, uh, and just really care for one another and build and be a, a source of encouragement, exhortation, and strength for fellow believers. Um, Paul fo- or Peter, my goodness, follows up in chapter four there with uh, a section on Christian suffering and that we shouldn't be surprised when suffering happens. Uh, but with a Christ-centered perspective, there will be rejoicing because we, um, again, have anchored our hope. You see this one thing that hits throughout the entire letter. The, our anchor is, is in eternity. He, co- he compares suffering as a Christian uh, with that of a non-Christian at the end of chapter four here as well. And and the, really the joy is found as a Christian suffering versus a non-Christian um, Chapter five, he takes a moment to reflect on the elders, other words, pastors, and what it means and encourage and exhort them as leaders in the church. And then he concludes the chapter in the first book of Peter um, in chapter five, verse six through 11. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, 
casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ with himself will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. And he kind of wraps up his chapter then. He gives you some final greetings uh, and then ends the first book of Peter. And then we shift into second Peter, uh, which will emphasize practical Christian living. Um, he warns against false teachers and the negative influence they carry on moral living. Uh, this letter will emphasize, uh, the second Peter letter will emphasize the true knowledge of God while facing false teachers and encourage readers to maintain Christian virtues in the midst of the, wor- the world's vices. Um, and so we'll see that in three chapters here, the, the, the recurring theme of encouragement, the recurring theme uh, of coming against false teachers, comparing false teachers. And, and if you follow false teachers, you'll have a, like the, the, neg- the negative impact it will have on morality, um, which we can see that in, in our culture and day to day even. Um, but the, the letter starts off typically with a greeting uh, in chapter one there. And then it uh, shifts into a uh, an encouragement towards growth in the faith. It says this in verses three through nine. It says, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. And it's this really challenging exhortation that Peter is giving to start off the letter, but challenging them towards maturity and and growth and understanding one's um, life and what it looks like to live practically in in the day and age that he is writing to them in the midst of the suffering they have faced, to, to hold tightly to the hope we profess. And I love the picture that he says, his divine power has given us everything we need, everything required for living a life, for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Uh, And so I just think it's really cool. And then he talks about the idea of building our lives around the idea of of just not faith, but faith with goodness and then goodness with knowledge. And I love that he kind of compounds everything so that we, because at the end of the day, he even says in verse eight, like the goal is that we will be useful and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, because that is what helps provide life and keeps our, our, our focus and our anchor in eternity and knowing of the life to come. And continuing in chapter one, we get this insight in verses 12 to 15. It says, therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. I think it is right, as long as I'm in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder. Since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to me, and I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. In other words, Peter is saying in a a very simple moment, that, hey, I know my life is about to be to be over. I know that, that I'm about to die. I know that my time has come to an end because God has, Christ has made that clear to me. 
And I want to remind you of the things that are important. And my hope is that in reminding you of the things that are important that I know you already know, that even after I'm gone, you will still be able to recall these things to mind. And so that's why I say what I say. I'm, I'm, and, and so he has this moment where it's his end of, at the end of a life. He's kind of coming. To, he, he understands what's happening. And, and that's where he, he is shifting some of the focus to be a reiteration of reminding of the things he's talking about. Um, you'll, so you'll see some repetitiveness from 1 Peter 1 or 1 Peter 2. Uh, continues on to explain um, that what they believe is a true prophetic word. They, in essence, they see, he, he kind of compares like this is what false belief leads to versus what a true belief leads to. You'll find that kind of in the rest of chapter 2, uh, or sorry, chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, it's an entire chapter devoted to the explanation of judgment for false teachers. So he's he's reminding them of what's true and what it looks like to live in response to what's true versus a false false teaching or a myth. Chapter two is an is pretty much an explanation of the judgment that's coming for false teachers, um, and the goal there is to help those who are in that false teacher because there's no doubt they would have heard these letters at some point, and some of the content is that they would return to repentance. Um, chapter three is the focus. It focuses on the coming day of the Lord. And we get this passage in three verses eight through nine it says, dear friends, don't overlook this one fact with the Lord. One day is like a thousand years and a thousand years, like one day, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And I think that's a really important highlight because, uh, sometimes it is viewed like God is slow to respond or slow to answer. And I love that Peter has this revelation and draws us into this revelation of the simplicity and the truth of like the fact that God, a thousand years is like a day, a day is like a thousand years. Like there, there's no time limit or time restraint that God feels in the midst of the journey, but he's trying, he, he's patient. God is patient. He's, he's, he's even revealed that self, he revealed that of himself throughout scripture. And so he talks about, uh, Peter reminds the believers and, uh, and talks about the reality that God is patient. It's not a, it's not God's delaying to respond. It's he's trying to be patient with you because he doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to come and belong to the family of God. And then we get the concluding verses of the book of Second Peter. In essence, the last words of Peter uh, in chapter three, verses 14 to 18, it says this, it says, therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Also regard the patience of our, of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand, which this is like a kind of a funny moment. Um, because even Peter acknowledges what many of us have always felt with Paul's writings is it's hard to keep up and understand exactly what he's saying. Um, but he said, there are some matters that are hard to understand the untaught and unstable all twist them with their own destructions as they also do with the rest of scriptures. And so he's, he's affirming the fact that Paul is not just a, he, he has a deep revelation of things, but it's hard to understand because the truths that put Paul are teaching are not the easiest concepts to grasp. And so people are taking them who are not taught and who are unstable and twisting them and manipulating them to their own destruction, but also leading others astray. Um, and then he's, and he also kind of tags on, and they do this with all the rest of scripture too, uh, but kind of gives an affirmation to Paul there for a moment, but also explains the difficulty of, uh, to be honest, these spiritual concepts and spiritual truth. Uh, he says this in light of this verse 17, therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And so Peter's making this last final statement to, in essence, reiterate the truth that we we today have read throughout Scripture about the idea of anchor to Jesus, grow in your understanding of the truth and the gospel, anchor your lives back to Christ and the hope that he gives us in eternity, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's it's this call to not just take every whimsical thought or every whimsical idea from false teachers, people who are untaught and unstable, but to anchor one's faith to Christ and Christ alone and to do the work. And I think that's one of the things that is important, to do the work of understanding and growing in our knowledge of Christ. And that's where kind of Peter wraps up his thoughts and wraps up his letter is by one final exhortation to re-anchor one's faith back to Christ and live according to that and what's totally true. And that's where we end this week's reading. Boom. Next week we have one of the other, I guess, if if you're naming the two main apostles, it's, or disciples, it's Peter and John. So next week we get the other John. And then we get the Eli Manning of the of Jesus' brothers. So he's, you know, still a big deal, still wrote a book of the Bible, but, you know, not, you know, it's not like James quite as bit. But uh, we'll get to that next week. Before we wrap up this week's episode, though, we do want to talk about what we learned today. Yeah, I, Aaron, here's the, I feel personally attacked. Uh, reading through Hebrews, the section about how uh, essentially – don't allow love of money to take over your life. I think like usually when we think about those verses, it's in, from the sense of, you know, do you love money to where like you're just trying to get as much of it as you can. You're trying to hoard it. And, you know, you're kind of like, are you Scrooge McDuck in it essentially? Um, but the way it's phrased there is basically just remember that God promises he's going to take care of you and don't let this be a big driving force of your life. Uh, and I'll be honest, you know, it has been for me. So it's a, it's a good, it's a good reminder of, um, even in the midst of kind of the stress of everything that can be happening, even in the midst of kind of trying to, part of it's being like a new dad and all the different stuff, you're trying to get all these things figured out. Uh, Even in the midst of that to allow God to be the provider uh, is a really important thing for us today to remember. And even then to not allow ourselves to crave the stability of money or crave all those different things, but really ask ourselves, how can we best be serving God? Uh, And then trust that he'll be able to take care of us in the midst of that. Yeah, that's never a fun one. I feel like I, every time I read that portion of scripture, because there's so many different places, I feel the same way. So uh, I'm right there with you. I always feel personally attacked by the word of God because uh, I'm a sinner saved by grace, apparently. So. Conviction, not condemned, right? It's totally true. Yep. Uh, I think for me, it, it kind of, based upon Peter's writings and um, just the idea of anchoring one's faith to eternity, I think is a really challenging thought for us today. Um, but I think it even goes with like the last exhortation that I just read was just the tension of um, am I really doing the work? This is the question that I asked as I was finishing reading. Am I really doing the work to grow in my knowledge of Christ so that I'm not buying into every whim and every teaching of whoever stands on a platform and preaches quote unquote a passage or a soundbite from social media or whatever? Like, where am I really anchoring my faith to? And is it totally to Christ or is it some other version of Christ? Um, and I think it's really important today, especially in the world we live in today, that as Christians, we have to do the work. And and I intentionally said that at the end of Second Peter, and I bring it up back again t- today too, because uh, we live in a world of, of advancement in technology and advancement in um, convenience, where it's not a matter of 
I don't have to do a lot of hard work to figure some things out. I got chat freaking GPT now that can write a sermon for me if I really wanted to. And for I clarity, written, I haven't done it. I haven't written a sermon in years. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. But uh, I've just, I mean, back in the day, it was like stealing other people's sermons, right? And quoting them as my own. Like, anyways, I never did that either. But I just know that there's, it requires an investment and a work. And that there's a reason why it's called disciplines, like spiritual disciplines. Like there's a requirement where we have to, excuse me, die to ourselves and and live with the truth in mind that it requires one to pick up their own cross and not pick up somebody else's cross um, and call it good. So I think that there's that layer to it. In order to stay anchored to faith and have hope in, in eternity, it requires diligence. It requires work. Um, and that's what I think one of the things Peter was really getting at is this idea of uh, you have to grow yourself. You have to mature yourself. You have to cling to the gospel yourself. You can't just assume and take, hey, that's a good thought. I like that soundbite. Um, you can't take my word for it. You can't take my insights or observations. You can't take my interpretation of scripture that you really have to do the work of what Christ is calling you to and and merge that with the gospel. Uh, and I think that's a big part of what we're called to as followers of Christ. It's it's picking up our, our cross, denying ourselves and following Jesus. That's the biggest thing I think. So it is, it's hard work. It's Christian faith is not an easy one, especially in the world we live in today. It's only getting harder if we live in America, right? And you know, I know other countries are already experiencing even more hardships, but it's just this real big picture that I feel like has kind of challenged me a bit is to be willing to lean in, to sacrifice, to give up things I love so I can spend time with Jesus and grow in my knowledge and understanding of who he is. And then what that means for me in living my life because I want to live a holy life because he himself is holy. So uh, that's the challenge I think that I have coming out of this week. Great thoughts. Uh, we did have a couple of questions come in, so we're going to take a second to answer those. All right. So the first question is, in the Mark account of the resurrection, Mark 16, 7 has the angel giving direction to tell the disciples and Peter. Uh, is Peter not being included or is Peter not included as part of the disciples because he had effectively distanced himself and had yet to be restored in John chapter 21? Is that what's going on there? That's a good question. Yeah. I think there, I mean, no definitive answer. Uh, I think there's two ways you can- I got a definitive, I'm just kidding. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think there's two ways you can interpret it. I think one is exactly what you said. Uh, Peter kind of went above and beyond distancing himself and therefore is not counted among them. Uh, and the reason I say above and beyond is because John's the only one who's there. So it's not as if sometimes we have this idea that uh, there's, well, I guess not 11 disciples, 10 disciples are loyal. And then, cause obviously Judas would not be counted among the loyal <laughs> disciples. Uh, and then Peter's the one who denies Christ, but the rest of them are also gone. So out of the 11 disciples who didn't actively try to get Jesus murdered, uh, 10 of them freak out as well. So I, so it could be that, um, I actually tend to think of it as Peter kind of has his place at the top of the, he's kind of the first among equals of the disciples. And so I think this is actually uh, I think this it might be a position of honor that the book hmm. is giving to him instead of a position of uh, of dishonor, which is funny because you really could interpret it either way. But the way yeah. I read it, I would tend to say the disciples and Peter as being kind of the leader of the disciples at that point is how I, I don't know, Aaron, if you agree or disagree. I don't know if I see it that way. I see it more as a restorative piece mm -hmm. because the last interaction he, Peter had with Jesus was rejection. And then it says he left and wept bitterly. Right. And so I... And then there was like, then we find later that Peter and James and John and Andrew are all fishing again. So they go back to what they normally, because um, that's kind of what they know. Like, okay, Christ is gone. I guess we were wrong. Like I, I could see that more of a restorative piece where Peter is probably still in the guilt and shame of rejection. Um, 
and he didn't get a chance to redeem himself in that moment, right? And so I think that's why, that's why I would say the restoration in John chapter twenty-one is even more powerful and even more symbolic and, and necessary. Um, so when I read it, I would read it more as a it's it's intention. Don't you, you need to tell Peter? Like go tell Peter, uh, go tell the disciples and Peter because I think there is this deep, uh, uh, not bitterness, but there's this this grief and this shame that Peter's facing. So maybe he doesn't even hang out with the disciples as much because of that, uh, because of his rejection of Christ. And so I think that that to me is how I would read it and I would see it more. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that, I think that's why I like the question so much. I was like, this is just like, it's definitely a fun a fun question to process and consider and ponder through. So, oh, for sure. But yeah, that's how uh, I see it. All right, question two. Hi, gents. Hello. Hola. Uh, is tithing a new covenant thing or is it an old covenant thing that was fulfilled and replaced with everyone loves a cheerful giver? Thanks and happy Christmas. This is from our Welsh happy friend, Christmas. Tim. So yes. he's, they say happy Christmas over there, not Merry Christmas. That's so. just weird. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There you go. Um, I don't know if we agree or disagree on this one. So I guess I'll say what I think. Ooh, and then we'll, ooh little, little uh, I don't know what you call it, conflict, little resolution that maybe needs to happen here. Hit me with your best shot. Uh, I think that, I do not think that tithing is a new covenant principle. Um, I think where that can get, uh, where sometimes people use that though, is the idea of like, I shouldn't give any of my money to the poor because tithing is an Old Testament thing. Uh, That is not the case. (laughs) So here's what I would say. Uh, The system of tithing in the Old old Covenant is the idea of giving 10% of your income uh, or 10% of your wealth actually um, to the or maybe it is income. Sorry, I shouldn't have said wealth or income. It's, it's one of the two. I don't remember exactly how it breaks down. Of your herds, though, is why I'm thinking. Because we, sometimes we also think of the old in the in the world of the old covenant as like they're giving money. Usually that's not what it was because your yeah. wealth wasn't in gold. Your yeah. wealth is probably in uh, wheat or sheep. Exactly. Or, it's like settlers of Catan. There you go. Yeah, you're, you're rolling for your sheep or your wheat. <laughs> maybe you get brick once in a while. Who knows? Maybe you get the thief. Anyway, that's a, a tenth of my hard. wood. Um, so the, the principle of the tithe was you gave 10%. And it was to fund the priesthood because the priests were doing other things. They weren't working for money. And so it was in order that priests can eat. It was in order that they uh, could have places, all those different things. And 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 um, and not just for their own well-being, to keep, upkeep the temple and all those different things. Uh, so I think the, the command of the tithe is not something that we see in the New Testament. What, what we do see is a call to irrational generosity. It's a call to extreme generosity. Uh, and so I think you cannot you cannot have the opinion of – um, God calls us to extreme generosity in the new covenant. Therefore, I don't have to give any of my money. That's not the way it works. And so I think well, the way I would say it is, I think the tithe is a good principle. Um, it's a good idea of what's a baseline level of generosity that I should be striving for, and then also go above and beyond. Um, and I also think the principle of just like the tithes in the old in the old covenant were used to fund the temple, I think tithes today are used to fund the church. Like that's how um, I mean, Aaron is pastors. That's how we get paid, right? It's it's the it's the giving Shh, of the people. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> uh, it's the giving. It's of all the, you non-tithers out there. No, I'm just kidding. It's the giving of the people in the church. Yeah. Uh, the reason we're able to, <clears throat> the reason that we're able to do uh, outreach in the community, the reason we're able to have events, the reason we're able to do things like I'm, I guess I'm listing off things that you would only know if you come to the church. But we have like iHeart, which is a big outreach where we go into the community, we take on a bunch of projects. We have a big uh, food bank. Uh, 
event that we do Christmas gifts for, for people in the community. Like there's a bunch of things that we do as a church that are only possible through giving. And so in that sense, the tithe still supports the local church. Um, but I would say under the new covenant as well, it's not just about giving to the church. I would say it's about living generously in our lives. Um, and so one of the things that me and Ashley do is we give, we give money to the church. Um, or I guess, I mean, this is more how inside much? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. Me and Aaron technically tithe to the pastors network that we belong to. So it's, it's a whole, it's a whole weird thing, but anyway, uh, but we give our tithe and then we have offerings that we want to give to other places as well. And so there's, um, there's different charities that we really love the work that they do. And so we want to see that continue. So we want to be generous with that. Um, we try to be generous with like friends and family who are, whether it's going through a rough time or whatever it is. And so I would say know the specific principle of giving 10% is, is it, that's an old covenant principle, but the new covenant principle is probably even higher than the old covenant principle. And the idea there is we don't let our wealth master us at all. And we live, we live generously. This doesn't mean at the expense of taking care of our families, but it does mean that, um, our bank account should reflect our priorities. And if there's nothing being given towards the furthering of the kingdom, that's probably an indication of where our priorities lie. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think I agree with you for the most part. Um, I, I would say that the tithe is not an old covenant thing. Um, it actually predates the covenant. And, and that's where I, I think I, true. I, I split hairs a little bit in the sense of Moses's response to Melchizedek, who we just even talked about. Abraham. In, Sorry, Abraham, my bad. <laughs> Abraham's good. response to Melchizedek was one out of worship, um, which is where I could see Melchizedek being a Christophany, which is not something I ever thought about until today when you were talking. I was like, oh, I guess I couldn't. Interesting. It could go either way. Um, and so I could see that for sure. Uh, and so that's where I, I think in some respects, oftentimes I hear the this argument, and, I, and I'm not, I don't want to presume that it's the argument that our our beloved listener is coming from. Um, but oftentimes it's, it's the argument of why well, I don't have to, cause that's old Testament and it actually predates old covenant period. It's a, it's an, it should be generosity should be a natural response to provision by God. Like it, it should just be natural for us to say, God, you've provided for me in so many ways. I'm going to, I'm going to respond and worship to you. That was all throughout the old Testament. We see that. So I think, I think it's, it predates covenant period. Um, and I would agree with you. Um, entirely that I'm not sure 10% is the threshold anymore. I think there is a layer of irrational generosity, um, which is why that everyone loves a cheer, God loves, not everyone, but God loves a cheerful giver. That's the phrase that's being used. And, and I do think, you know, there's two, there's two thoughts. There, there's one story that comes to mind. It's Jesus talking to the disciples as he's looking at the uh, Pharisee paying a temple tax or not paying a temple, but giving 10% of his wealth, income, whatever to the temple and you have a widow who drops in equivalent of two pennies. And he, Jesus says she is far greater because she gave out of her poverty. She gave more than, than, I mean, even, and not to say that this is what everyone should do, but like she, in essence, decided to give what she needed to provide for herself because she was responding and worshiping God with her, with her money in that capacity. So I think, um, so I think that's an important piece of the conversation, because at the end of the day, I do think it is generosity. I do think it is a, God, what are you asking me to do with the resources you've given me? And that's why I think stewardship is a very big picture, a very big word to use to understand. Like my job is not to hoard my money. 
my job is to steward my, the money God has given me to steward. And the parable of the talents is a big one. The parable of the money bags is a big one where Jesus is drawing a very clear distinction of what are you doing with the resources I gave you? Um, and I think that's a very big filter for us today is that we've got to be considering from a stewardship standpoint. And this is all believers. Everyone who calls Christ their Lord and Savior, this is a biblical concept that we have to do better at in responding in obedience to Jesus um, and and worshiping. And the church is a big part of that. Like, yeah, our paychecks are from the generosity of of many people in our church family. And I, and, and I don't ever want to take advantage or take that for granted because – I mean, it's it's on one hand livelihood, but that's why we spend time working on a podcast or it's why we are able to do the work we can to build the church to glorify God. And so I think there's layers to it, but I think the, the heart issue really is, am I am I willing to be sacrificial and a steward of what God has given me and a, and, and provided for me? And even who says like, well, I, I earn the money by the job I do. But it, I mean, scripture is very clear as well. God is the one who gives you the ability to create wealth. He's given you the resources, the ability, the talents to create a, a wealth, uh, financially speaking. So I think there is that piece where it's not just a New Testament, Old Testament thing. It's a biblical thing. It's a Christ-centered thing to live in generosity and to give sacrificially as the Holy Spirit would call us to because it's even, I think it's 1 Corinthians 9, no one should get a, give under compulsion, but out of what, in essence, what God has told them to give. And I think oftentimes we're a little more tight-fisted in what God, what we feel like, God, yeah, is, God has only told me to do this. Like, no, like if I'm holding my hand open, it's a generous lifestyle. God, what do you want me to do with this? How can I give to this? And and I think that's a big part of it. So it's it's the stewardship filter. It's you're not supposed to give under compulsion because Pastor Aaron is making a big plea, but it's it's really helping you understand a biblical concept so you can you be prayerful. Say, okay, God, I want to get there. So help me understand. So yeah, it kind of reminds me of the uh, the fasting conversation where Jesus says, you know, when you fast, don't call attention to it. Don't make it like, you know, like it's a huge deal. Just like go about your normal day. Yeah. You can also attribute it to the same, the same principle of when you give, yep. don't make it like it's this big, like big deal. Just like, no, go about your normal day, yep. like give cheerfully. And that even goes back to the story that, that I referred to with Jesus and the Pharisee and the, and the, the lady. The, the Pharisee was like making a show out of it to a degree. Right. And the, and the lady, the, the poor lady was like doing it very subtly and, mm-hmm. and humbly. And I think that's a big piece of that too. So anyways, oh, great, yeah, great questions. All right. Well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas.